The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Emily Day, and this is an episode from the Lawfare Archives for November 28th, 2021. There's been a lot of talk recently on repealing the 2002 Iraq War Solution, or the AUMF, and requiring President Biden, or any future president, to get new authorization from Congress to launch military operations in Iraq. To give more context on the matter, I chose an episode from February 28th, 2015, in which Lawfare's Benjamin Wittes and Bobby Chesney, along with General Jack Keane, appeared before the House Armed Services Committee to provide outside perspective regarding the Obama administration's proposed AUMF against ISIL. We talk about the president's proposed AUMF, its merits and its flaws, and how those failings can be addressed. I'm Sebastian Brady, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. February 28th, 2015. That was Benjamin Wittes you just heard, Editor-in-Chief of Lawfare and a Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution. This week, Ben, along with Lawfare's Bobby Chesney and General Jack Keane, appeared before the House Armed Services Committee to provide outside perspectives on the President's proposed authorization for the use of military force against ISIL. It's an in-depth hearing that delves extensively into the President's proposed AUMF, its merits and its flaws, and how those failings can be addressed. For today's podcast, we've removed any non-AUMF discussions that only the most relevant parts are included. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 112, Outside Perspectives on the AUMF. Committee will come to order. Committee meets today to hear testimony on the President's proposed authorization for the use of military force against ISIS. This hearing is just the first committee event on this issue, but given the expertise of the witnesses today, I think it will raise many of the issues and considerations that we will need to follow up on in the future. Previously, we've heard testimony that the threat posed by Islamic jihadists is growing. Last September, President Obama said, and I want to quote here, our objective is clear. We will degrade and ultimately destroy ISIL through a comprehensive and sustained counterterrorism strategy, end quote. Many people, including me, are concerned, however, that we do not really have a clear strategy that will accomplish that goal. An AUMF is not a strategy. It is only an authorization to use military force against a particular enemy. In spite of the fact that the president ordered military action against ISIS to begin 
several months ago and only now has submitted a request to Congress to authorize such action, I believe it's still important for the United States Congress to do its constitutional duty. But I have a number of questions and concerns about the President's language. First, as we've experienced with the 2001 AUMF, defining the enemy is difficult, especially as they adapt and form new allegiances and seek to manipulate our system. Second, we already put too many encumbrances on our troops in carrying out the missions they are assigned, in my opinion. So going into battle with a lawyer nearby to decide whether a particular action is enduring or offensive or a ground combat operation seems problematic. Third, I know that some are concerned about the time limitation included in this draft. I think a forcing action that requires Congress to consider and possibly update an AUMF may be useful. But I want to hear from our witnesses their views because I recognize the drawbacks of unintentionally telegraphing a timeline to the enemy. A vote to authorize a president to send American men and women into battle is as serious and sober, sobering a vote as any vote cast by a member of Congress. Our country has always been incredibly fortunate to have had individuals of outstanding bravery and dedication defending our nation and the American way of life. We are facing a cruel and savage opponent. Our service members must know that their mission carries the full weight of approval under our constitutional system and that the administration, this Congress, and the American people will stand with them and support them as long as it takes to accomplish the missions which they have been assigned. That will be my goal as we go through this process. Mr. Smith. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. I think there's really two topics for uh, this morning's hearing. One is the basic details of the AUMF uh, with regards to Syria uh, and Iraq and, and ISIL. And it's, it's a very, very difficult thing to do uh, because Congress wants to strike the balance. Uh, we do not want to give the president a blank check uh, and take away any of our authority. On the other hand, we don't want to restrict um, the executive branch in a way that hampers um, his ability to carry out the mission. Um, that from a language standpoint, can, can be virtually impossible. And I think the chairman mentioned some of the areas um, of tension there, the timeline. Um, I think the timeline is fine because, as the chairman mentions, Congress can come back and reauthorize. It sort of makes sure that we stay um, as, as part, part of the process, that we don't let our constitutional authority slip. Uh, the tougher questions are... Um, you know, how do we define uh, military engagement without simply giving the president the right to do whatever, whenever? Um, and I'll get more into this in the strategy session, but I, for one, think that it would be a mistake strategically to excessively rely on U.S. military force to try and solve this problem. Um, so I am looking for ways to, to limit that, to make sure uh, that we don't have an executive that thinks that the military is the solution to this problem, because we should all keep in mind, whatever President Obama's uh, personal position on this is, this AUMF would carry over to another president. Um, which we can't be sure of. So I think those limitations are, are important but, but difficult to articulate, which brings me to the real issue here today, which I think is the broader strategy. Uh, what, what is the broader strategy? I think it can be fairly simply defined um, in the sense that we need to get to the point where the Muslim world rejects this type of violent extremism. I think one of the things that makes 
the strategy so difficult is it is a moving target. Uh, back in 9-11, you know, it was all about al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda senior leadership in Afghanistan. But the ideology is so much broader than that, as everybody here knows. Um, it crops up in all manner of different places, from al-Shabaab to Boko Haram um, to Ansar al-Sharia. Um, it is an ideology that is becoming far too deeply rooted in that part of the world. How do we stop it? Well, the short answer is we don't stop it. Um, because the most dependable um, part of the message that al-Qaeda has um, is to basically say that they are defending the Muslim world against Western aggression. The last thing in the world we want is either you know, a whole bunch of U.S. troops to show up and try to fix the problem or just as bad, you know, a whole bunch of U.S. policymakers going over there um, and telling Muslim countries and Muslim governments how they should conduct themselves. They're not going to be responsive to that. This is a problem that has to be solved internally by these countries. And the real strategic challenge for us here is how can we help without making the problem worse? It's a very delicate balance, and I'd be very interested in hearing from the three of you on how we can engage in that, because this is an ideological struggle. This isn't about defeating AQAP or defeating al-Qaeda senior leadership or even primarily about defeating ISIL. It's about stopping this just horrific ideology uh, that has spread to too many parts of the Muslim world. How, how do we stop it? How do we get that to be turned around? Um, because the truth is, the overwhelming majority of the Muslim world rejects this ideology and rejects this strategy, and yet it marches on. Um, how, how, do we, how do we work with that to change that? And then the final key piece of this is that makes it very difficult to develop a strategy um, is we keep tripping over another aspect of conflict in that world, and that is the Shia-Sunni divide. Um, you know, we may well be in there fighting ISIL, um, but if ISIL is fighting Shia, um, as, they, as they were in Iraq, and the main reason they were so successful in Iraq uh, is because the Sunni Iraqis looked at Baghdad and said, that's not my government. Um, that is a government that is sectarian, that is protecting Shia, uh, that is doing nothing for us. So they basically sided with ISIL, not so much because they loved ISIL's ideology, but because they found it preferable to Shia rule. Um, if somehow, some way, Saudi Arabia and Iran could find a way to peacefully coexist tomorrow, a huge chunk of this problem would go away. Um, now, that's obviously easier said than done, um, but it is part of the equation, um, is figuring out this, this, the, the Shia-Sunni split. So I think part of the reason people are confounded sometimes on the strategy level um, is because this is a moving target with lots of complicated pieces. It defies a two-sentence strategy. And in fact, I don't think we would be well served by coming up with that two-sentence strategy. It's a dynamic problem. We have to be flexible in terms of how we respond to it. But one piece of it is, with the U.S. engaged militarily against ISIL, as I think it should be, uh, Congress should play its role. Um, we should authorize that use of military force within whatever parameters we as a body decide. Uh, with that, I yield back, and I look forward to the testimony and the questions. Thank the gentleman. I ask unanimous consent that a letter that Mr. Smith and I received from retired General James Mattis, former CENTCOM commander on the AUMF, be made part of the record.
without objection so ordered and without objection each of your written statements will be made part of our record as well let me welcome our witnesses we're very fortunate today to have retired general jack Keane, former vice chief of staff for the u.s army uh, robert m chesney associate dean for academic affairs and charles i francis professor of law at the university of texas school of law an outstanding institution i would add uh, Benjamin Wittes, uh, Senior Fellow of Government Studies at the Brookings Institution, and as many of y'all know, uh, Mr. Chesney and Mr. Wittes are both associated also with the Lawfare blog, which uh, is widely read on these constitutional national security issues. So thank you all for being here. General Keene, floor is yours. Yeah. Chairman Thornberry, Ranking Minority Smith, members of the committee, Thank you for inviting me to testify today on the President's request for authorization of use of military force. I'm honored to be here again and to share the panel with my distinguished colleagues. I've been testifying here for 15 years before this committee, and I just want to tell you once again how much I appreciate the support that you provide to our armed forces through all these years and what you're doing currently. I've always appreciated your serious and thoughtful approach to the nation's business regardless of who's been the majority in this committee. Please reference the map that I provided at the end of my testimony when I discussed the enemy its geography. It was prepared by the Institute for the Study of War, where I'm the chairman. This was a part of a, a recent intelligence summary and is useful to understand how ISIS looks at the world. My remarks will be brief, highlighting the essential op observations only, permitting the focus to be your questions. In principle, I agree with the President, who desires to use military force beyond a short-term contingency, requests an AUMF from the Congress. The current AUMFs, 2001 and 2, which are obviously still in use, are in their design good documents, and that it is clear why military force is being authorized and provides latitude for the President to determine how to use that force. Indeed, an argument can be made that the President's current AUMF request is unnecessary in that the previous AUMFs provide sufficient authorization for the use of force against ISIS. Nonetheless, I do believe it is better public policy for a new AUMF based on the reality that ISIS is a different threat in terms of its scale, mode of operation, location, and near-term intent. As to the President's current AUMF request, I would like to make a few observations. The strategy. Strategy is how the military force is used. This is the President's lane, along with his senior military commanders. As much as I and some members of Congress are critical of the administration for not having a comprehensive strategy to defeat radical Islam, nor an adequate strategy to defeat ISIS, the AUMF is not the appropriate document for that expression. A President needs maximum flexibility to adapt to the enemy and the battlefield environment, which at times may demand a change in strategy. The enemy. The enemy is ISIS, and the proposed AUMF describes it as ISIS and Associates. ISIS has claimed contractual agreements and a written plan approved by ISIS leader Abu Bakhtar al-Baghdadi to form satellites in Libya, Egyptian Sinai, Afghanistan, and also Algeria, Saudi Arabia, and Yemen. Some of these affiliates, affiliations are likely aspirational, to be sure, but ISIS is exporting military capability to make affiliates in Sinai and Libya stronger. All that said, defeating ISIS does not mean that U.S. forces are needed to defeat ISIS satellites. The geography. Core ISIS is principally located in Iraq and Syria, but it covets territory in a broader region including Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Israel, 
and lands that are part of historic caliphates like the Caucasus. As such, there should be no geographical limitation in the AUMF. The time constraint. It makes no sense to me to tell our allies and the enemy that we are uncertain of this commitment of force by our unwillingness to extend it beyond three years. Congress has the authority to provide continuous assessments through its oversight committees, which is far more appropriate than a three-year sunset. The ground force constraint. ISIS cannot be defeated in Iraq and Syria without a decisive ground force victory. There is no ground force in Syria, and no one knows if the Iraq ground force can defeat ISIS. Why put limits on the use of a ground force when it's widely recognized as the only means to defeat ISIS? Indeed, it may be necessary for a coalition ground force with the United States likely in the lead to ultimately defeat ISIS. The ground force constraints should be removed from the AMF if the true goal is to defeat ISIS. In conclusion, the proposed AUMF is not an acceptable document. The time and ground force constraint must be removed. This president, as well as the next president, deserve latitude in the use of military force. Additionally, how to use the military force or strategy is not an appropriate topic for this document, as I previously stated, but it is essential for the Congress to provide oversight and in so doing, understand the feasibility of the strategy actually working. I believe it is a matter of conscience to only support an AUMF if there is confidence that the strategy our troops execute will indeed succeed in defeating ISIS. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Professor Chesney? Chairman Thornberry, Ranking Member Smith, and members of the committee, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here today. And I associate myself with General Kane's remarks about the uh, tremendous history of this committee and, and the the way it conducts its business. I'd like to make six points this morning. First, the draft AUMF lacks a stated purpose in its operative sections. This is in contrast, for example, to the 2001 AUMF, and it's potentially significant. To be sure, the question of purpose is for policymakers to decide, ultimately not lawyers, but the lawyers in drafting an AUMF need to know what the purpose is in order to make sure their work product is suited to accomplishing the mission. And the public needs to know the purpose as well. And so as you improve upon the draft, I hope you will insist upon a clear statement of purpose in it. Second, the draft's attempt to forbid, quote, enduring offensive ground combat operations is a grossly indeterminate phrase on its face, and it should be dropped. Notwithstanding examples given by the White House in its transmittal letter accompanying the draft, the language inevitably will cast a shadow of uncertainty over commanders' operational decisions. The statement by Secretary Kerry this past Tuesday explaining a bit about what it means in his understanding, uh, referring to overnight embedding being okay, but weeks upon weeks of, uh, of some form of ground presence not being okay, I think underscores rather than assuages this concern. Simply put, commanders should not be left to guess where the boundaries lie. Third, at no point in American history has Congress ever simultaneously authorized the use of force to destroy an enemy militarily, while at the same time purporting to forbid the commander-in-chief from using ground forces towards that end. In fairness, there have been several authorizations in our history that have been narrow in various ways. But in all such cases, the objective 
was much narrower than the military destruction of the enemy. Instead, these were cases in which the objective involved important but limited things such as uh, ending piracy against our shipping or participation in a peacekeeping operation. Of course, if the actual objective with respect to ISIL is not its military destruction but instead something relatively more narrow yet still important, uh, then the analogy to past uh, narrow authorizations may work much better. But this simply underscores my earlier point about the need for clarity regarding the, the purpose of the AUMF in our mission. All that said, I can't say that Congress would lack the authority to enact such a limitation if it truly wishes to do so. I'm simply pointing out that it would be unprecedented in a particular way, and it's certainly closer to the constitutional borderline than things we've seen in the past. Fourth, I want to share my thoughts on what we usually call sunsets, although I'm beginning to think that we should get away from the sunset language because of the connotation it has for many people, that it suggests that it's predetermined that there won't actually be renewal. Uh, perhaps it's better to talk about them as renewal or forcing function provisions. The idea, of course, is to create an occasion after a certain period of time when the authorization, if appropriate, will receive the fresh imprimatur of, of a Congress and a president acting on the most recent conditions. And in this respect, I would just point out where we are with the 2001 AUMF, which, of course, is still a critical instrument. It supports our anti-Al-Qaeda operations around the world from Yemen to Somalia Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iraq as well. It's been 13 years plus since it was enacted, and the passage of time has led many to criticize it on the grounds that it's somehow become stale, that it's become attenuated as al-Qaeda has evolved. And it is a shame, I think, that we haven't had an, uh, a past occasion where it's been clearly refreshed by a more recent Congress in order to avoid these kinds of problems, which create friction uh, in the reliance upon the AUMF. Now, it's true that it did partially get refreshed in the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2012, um, but that, lim that refreshment, unfortunately, was limited to uh, reference to the detention authority and rather than being a, a full refreshment. But the point is, the experience with the 2001 AUMF illustrates how there is something to be said in favor of being able to continue to operate under an AUMF if you ensure that Congress will, in fact, come back to it after a certain number of years. I recognize, however, that you cannot create a sunset or renewal provision that signals to the enemy that we're starting off with one foot already out the door. And so in thinking about how you strike the balance here, my, my conclusion is that the better way to go is not a three-year but a five-year sunset, which also has the virtue of not landing this particular renewal provision on the doorstep of a newly elected president who may still be getting uh, fully acclimated into the office and getting personnel into, into place. My next point is about the silence of the draft AUMF on matters of detention which is rather striking, if you ask me. Another lesson of the past 13 years is that the silence of an AUMF on detention is itself a cause for great legal friction if and when the United States may decide that in addition to using lethal force against ISIL targets, heaven forbid we actually detain some in military custody for the duration of our conflict. Um, if and when we come to that point, we will regret, I think, not having said something in the AUMF clarifying detention authority. So at a minimum, I hope Congress will consider that issue. Last, uh, there's the question of whether all this is moot because the administration, though asking for this ISIL-specific AUMF, uh, it does continue to assert that it has the authority to do what it is doing already under color of the 2001 AUMF and possibly as well under Article 2 of the Constitution. I, I don't think it's entirely moot. As an initial matter, the 
2001 AUMF argument and the constitutional argument that have been the backdrop up to this point, up to this very moment, are not without their detractors. They're, they're far from obviously correct arguments, and that in itself creates a lot of legal friction. Uh, insofar as we're putting our armed forces into harm's way, they deserve a clear legal endorsement for what they're doing from this body. Um, as to the particular constraints in the draft AUMF being moot, uh, again, at one level, yes, as a lawyer, I can explain to someone if they have the time and patience to listen to me as to why the constraints in the new AUMF, since they aren't present in the old one, don't really matter. But I think that's, while true as a legal matter, it's different as a political and rhetorical matter. And the existence of these constraints in the new AUMF will cast a shadow back over the old one and create more legal friction. So for that reason alone, I think this proposal really does have to be taken quite seriously. Uh, so let me stop there. I thank you for uh, your time, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Mr. Wittes. Thank you, Chairman Thornbury, uh, Ranking Member Smith, and members of the committee for inviting me to present my views on the President's proposed authorization for the use of military force against the Islamic State. Uh, I want to advance, uh, I'm, I'm more modest than Bobby on this, I want to advance only two basic arguments today. Uh, and the, the first is that the administration's draft ISIL AUMF, while it is a significantly flawed document, is flawed in ways that are somewhat different from many of the criticisms being advanced against it. So I, I want to start by separating what, from, from my vantage point anyway, is the wheat from the chaff and sort of dispensing with a number of the criticisms of the draft that are, to my judgment at least, uh, meritless or, or uh, having significantly less merit than, they are, uh, than their presence in the conversation. So many critics have worried that the draft AUMF would limit the president and his successor in prosecuting the war. And some, some in, this, in this regard, some have worried about the limitation on the use of ground forces. Others have argued that the problem is chiefly the three-year proposed sunset. I think both concerns are actually misplaced, um, at least as a legal matter, though, though Professor Chesney's point that, that they may have political, uh, operate as political constraints is certainly, uh, is certainly a valid one. And there, I think it's misplaced as a legal matter for largely the same reason, which uh, Professor Chesney just alluded to, which is that this authorization, at least as the administration proposes it, is not the president's only source of, of, of authority to use force. And so limitations in the authorization do limit presidential power to the extent that some other authority exists for the contemplated action. Um, the proposed authorization leaves in place untouched the 2001 AUMF, which the administration has construed quite broadly, which does, including to cover all of its operations today, and which doesn't contain a sunset provision. So uh, the result is that uh, you actually have these optical um, restraints that don't in fact do what they seem to say they're doing. So moreover, I think it's implausible, and, and both of the, the, my co-panelists have mentioned this, that the ground force limitation in the AUMF is uh, you know, quite what it seems to be, even if it were the only source of authority. And the reason is the elasticity um, of the word enduring and offensive. And I think all of, the resolution does not define either word. And uh, there's just a lot of room for elastic interpretation there. And I can't imagine that administration that wanted to use uh, ground forces in any significant way would not be able to either define them as not offensive or define them as something less than enduring. 
A number of commentators have also complained that the draft resolution contains no hard geographic limitations that would contain it to Iraq and Syria. Um, I think this, is a, this criticism actually denigrates what is one of the virtues of the administration's AUMF. Um, ISIL is a fluid enemy. It is by no means likely to restrict its activities to Iraq and Syria. And as General Keane points out, it's already developing relationships with countries elsewhere, with, with, with groups elsewhere, uh, that, you know, would be off limits uh, if, if a hard geographical limit were, were limitation were in the document and the document were legally operative. Um, I ask you to consider that if a similar geographic limitation had been inside the original 2001 AUMF, we would never have been able to undertake, under that authorization, operations against AQAP, which have been so vital uh, to American counterterrorism. Um, so that, all that said, I do think the administration's draft has serious problems, uh, which mostly have their roots in the proposal's breadth and failure to uh, uh, grapple with the relationship with the underlying 2001 AUMF. Now, as, as a lot of people have noted, the document on its face does not appear broad. Uh, it seems to have all these limitations, but it's actually written very carefully to make the create the impression of significant limitations without the reality. Um, and the administration's lawyers have succeeded in this to a degree that they are being denounced for the, breath, uh, for the, for the uh, restrictions in the proposal rather than developing anxiety about, about, um, about its actual breadth. In fact, the real problem is that despite the appearance of accepting restraint, the document contains virtually no meaningful restraints at all. Um, and the reason for that is the failure to grapple with the underlying 2001 AUMF, which it leaves in place without any, uh, I, I also have developed anxieties about the word sunset, but without any forcing mechanism for reconsideration. So under the administration's proposal, at least as a legal matter, the president would have all the authority he has today, including all the authority to fight ISIL, under the 2001 UMF, AUMF, and in addition to that, he would also be granted three years of even broader authority to target ISIL and its associated forces. And by the way, the draft defines associated forces quite broadly. Thus, the limitations on ground forces is entirely meaningless uh, since the 2001 AUMF remains in place. Uh, this doesn't concern me particularly because I don't actually favor a ground force limitation, but for those who do favor a ground force limitation, uh, I think you should be particularly concerned by one that's there in appearance but not in reality. The three-year sunset is also largely meaningless because the 2001 AUMF doesn't sunset. And the reporting requirements, which are quite anemic on their own terms, are similarly empty, and I think that should be of particular concern to this committee. Um, second point I want to advance is that there's an alternative to this approach. Um, in November of last year, my co-panelist Robert Chesney, Jack Goldsmith, Matt Waxman, and I uh, jointly drafted a possible AUMF, which we sort of imagined as a, as a way of sort of kick-starting a discussion on the subject. It did, um, and actually a lot of consensus developed between our author group and a group over at the Just Security website about the components of a new AUMF. Um, Unlike the President's recent proposal, our proposal aimed to integrate authorization for the fight against ISIL into authorization for the larger conflict. 
And we tried to supplant the existing AUMF with a more modern document to respond to exactly the concerns that Professor Chesney just laid out. So I want to identify a few aspects of this proposal that are, in light of, uh, that are relevant in light of the criticisms that the President's AUMF has received, both from the right, left, and center. So first, unlike the President's draft, our proposal would subsume the current AUMF uh, which covers, as the administration and the courts interpreted, al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and associated forces. And it would then repeal the underlying document. The result is that there would be a single authorization for fighting al-Qaeda, the Taliban, ISIL, and all of their associates. Second, because there would be no duplication in the authorization, the proposal sunset provision would actually mean something. It would actually serve the, ch the forcing function that the chairman was referring to. Third, while the draft does not contain specific geographic limitations, as the President's does, uh, it, as, as, as the, like the President's, it does not contain that. But it does authorize force only where it could be used consistent with applicable international law concerning sovereignty and the use of force, um, thus giving some territorial guidance. Um, it would allow the sort of things we did with al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, it would not allow, say, the use of force or authorize the use of force you know, in France. Um, and fourth, the proposal contains significantly more robust reporting requirements than does the administration's draft. And I would urge you, uh, even if you're proceeding off of the administration's draft, to look at the disparity between what we would have asked them to report and what they want to have reported, I think that difference alone is very substantial. So look, I have no doubt that our proposal could stand significant improvement in any number of areas. Um, and there are aspects of it, actually looking back at it five months after we wrote it, that I would change. Uh, but our, I think our draft offers an approach that is far less susceptible than the administration's draft to the concerns that many scholars across the political spectrum have raised. And as this body considers how to authorize the conflict against ISIL and how, and really importantly, how that authorization should interact with the existing AUMF, our proposal may offer an alternative way forward that might attract a broader swath of support. So thank you very much. Look forward to taking any questions. Thank you, and I appreciate, uh, again, testimony from each of you. I, I guess I would like to have each of you comment on kind of a basic question, which is how important do you think it is for Congress to authorize a use of military force? I'm not really talking about whether the 2001 covers ISIL, that's a, uh, although that's an interesting question I, I hope we get to today. What I'm talking about is some people argue that Article 2 means a president can do whatever he needs to do to protect the country, and terrorism is a threat, so he can take action whenever and however he wants to. On a more practical level, some folks say he's been bombing for six months. Why, why do you need to act now? It's, it's uh, you know, just, just don't worry about it. Let it go on. So, Mr. Witt, starting with you, I would like to hear your views about the constitutional and legal importance of Congress acting to authorize a president's use of military force. And then, General Keene, by the time we get back to you, I would like to hear uh, how that affects our troops, how they see Congress acting or not acting to authorize the missions on which the Commander-in-Chief sends them. So if we can just go backwards up the, up the line, Mr. Wittes. Sure. I mean, look, at a practical level, 
at a, at a basic brass tacks practical level. The military is going to do what the commander-in-chief orders it to do, assuming you know, it's lawful order, irrespective of whether this body passes a document or not. Um, and so at that level, it is probably true that in some very tangible, immediate way, it doesn't matter all that much. Um, I would say, however, that it matters very much for three reasons. One is, I just have a moral problem with the idea of asking U.S. troops in a to engage in a long-term set of military operations without uh, them knowing that the political branches of this uh, of their government are behind them, and I, I think it's just not an appropriate thing for, uh, it's not an appropriate message to send to our own people. Um, Number two, at at the level of, I I don't know if it's constitutional law, but it's certainly constitutional hygiene. Um, Relying on a more than 13-year-old document that's about a different organization in a different part of the world uh, to conduct military operations now um, for a different reason, you know, um, is a, I, I think that's a, a very bad way for Congress and the administration to behave. It's, it's, it's not good to have legal authorities that you have to stretch and torture to have them reach the problems that you face. We should go through the exercise as a democratic polity of describing the war that we actually want to fight and, and doing so. And then the third reason, which I, I I think is a defense of this body's prerogatives with war powers. You know, if, if you all believe that, in fact, the definition uh, of, of the parameters of a war is not something that this body has, uh, that's not something you have a stake in, it's not, you know, part of why you got elected to office, then fair enough. You know, maybe you shouldn't be involved in the conversation. But if that sounds like a a sort of insulting thing to say, and of course this body has a role in defining the parameters of of scope of military action overseas, and of course it has an oversight function, uh, then this is a critical aspect of this body's engagement with its own constitutional responsibilities in this area. Mr. Chairman, passage of an AUMF specific to ISIL will signal resolve and commitment of this country both to our allies, which is a critical matter, and to the enemy itself, which is an even more critical matter. It will also signal to our our troops and our commanders this institution's investment of its own political capital, all of you and all your colleagues, all of your political capital being put on the table in support of what they're being asked to do. And I think all that matters as a practical matter very much in terms of that, that critical function, the, the legitimacy of the effort and the perception that it's going to be sustained over time to accomplish the mission. Um, turning to the, the particular angle the chairman mentioned, how does this interact or what does it say if we don't do it and Article II authorities are being relied upon in the background separate from the 2001 AUMF? Article II national self-defense authorities of the president to uh, use military force in defense of the country are broad and important, but they're far less capable of marshalling the credibility of this government and crystallizing public support than the ability that this body has, that Congress has, to pass an AUMF. Um, and, And it's also clear, as been alluded to, with the passage of time, 
strict reliance on Article 2 alone, if, if there's no authorization that plausibly supports what's happening, um, begins to become more and more problematic with, with, with time's passage and generates legal friction, as I mentioned in my opening remarks. Um, I think that at this stage, now that the issue has been put to Congress, a failure to act, a failure to authorize, would put us in an even worse spot than we were in terms of the degree of signals of unity by this government supporting this mission than where we were a month ago when we were carrying on these operations strictly on the president's combination of Article II authorities in the 2001 AMF. At this stage, I do think Congress needs to step up with some appropriate endorsement if indeed it believes in the mission. Yes, Mr. Chairman. It's indisputable the President has the authorities to, to do what he needs to do in terms of military force. And look at our troops. They're always going to respond to the, the orders of their, of their officers, take on the most difficult tasks. You know, something has really happened uh, in the use of military force and, and our troops' reaction to it, in my judgment, because I, I, transcend, I transcended from the pre-9-11 military to the post-9-11 military. I've been very close to both of it. And, you know, pre-9-11, we were, to include much of World War II, this was always about helping somebody else. And incredible expenditure of national treasure by the American people to make the world a better place and achieve security and stability for others, uh, even though maybe we may not have been directly involved. Post-9-11, and, and morale was always high. When, when the troops are off doing something, they have a sense of purpose about it. They have a sense of accomplishment. They have an incredible, intense, shared camaraderie with each other in, in, in being associated with people that are drawn, that not only have the motivation to do what we're asking them to do, but actually have the wherewithal to do it. And that's very different. Post 9-11, quite different. Because this, this has been and is today all about the American people. And our troops get it. We have a 9-11 generation in the United States military as a result of it. The Central Intelligence Agency has a 9-11 generation in it as a result of this. And they have a dogged determination to succeed and make this right for the American people. So that aspect of our troops and their commitment to do what is asked of them uh, is quite extraordinary. I know you know that. I'm just reinforcing what I think you know and, and trying to find my own words to explain it. But this is a pluralistic democratic society, more democratic than any other society on earth. This, is, this government is not just about the executive branch. You are the representatives of the people of this great country. It would never be lost on our troops that you are part of the authorization for the use of military force when we're conducting a campaign that will be protracted. And that's what this is. So I absolutely believe this is the right thing to do, to come together, to show the determination and resolve, and to back the orders of the President of the United States, and certainly back the execution of those orders by our troops. Mr. Jones. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much, and I thank the panelists for being here today to talk about the President's AUMF in uh, I'd like to make a couple of points, and then probably, Dean Chesney, I'm going to come back to you. Uh, you know, the fact is it's so vague, and you all have already commented on that, and uh, whether it should be expanded beyond ISA as to what groups could be a threat, what groups need to be fought 
attacked and defeated. Let me make that point. Uh, also, the issue of sunset, uh, whether it should be sunset or not. Uh, I was in the Congress. I've been here 20 years. I was here at 9-11. I was part of this committee at that time. I remember the, the um, anxiety of the American people and also those of us in Congress, by the way, that we had to do something. We had to give President Bush the authority to fight this enemy that had done so much damage to America. So we passed the AUMF uh, for 2001, and then a year or two later, we passed another AUMF for Iraq. Well, I bring that up because we are still there. If there had been a sunset with either of the two, do you think, Dean, that President Obama would have thought he had the authority to bomb Libya? Bob Gates, the Secretary of Defense, was sitting exactly where you are when my good friend, Randy Forbes, who's now left the committee for another meeting, asked Secretary Gates if Libya had dropped a bomb on New York City, would that be an act of war? He never answered it. He never answered it. So the point is that Mr. Obama did not come to Congress in any way to say to the Congress, this committee or any other committee, that we've got a problem with Gaddafi and Libya and we're going to attack. That's what's got the American people concerned, not just about Mr. Obama, but any president that has any type of authority that he or she can turn their nose up to the Constitution and we are complicit as a Congress if we give them such authority that there are no limits to that authority. And actually, there are no uh, endpoint to the strategy that an administration, forget whether it's Obama administration or another administration, that we become complicit as members of Congress who uphold our hands and say we will support the Constitution of the United States, and we know the requirement of the Constitution as it, excuse me, as it reflects to war powers. So my question to you is that if these 2001 and 2002 had had a sunset, do you think that Mr. Obama would have felt that he could bypass Congress and bomb a foreign country? Because my belief is, as a non-attorney, that if he had done that, then we get into international law that I don't think any nation, as great as America is, should have the power to just decide to go in and bomb another country because we don't like their leadership. And so, therefore, I think the AUMF needs to be vetted very carefully as we move forward. But I want to ask you, I've got a minute to give it to you. I want to ask you that if we had sunsetted those two AUMFs, do you think Mr. Obama would have felt he had the justification to bomb Libya? Sir, you raise a number of great questions. Uh, if, if there had been sunsets for the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs, and if those moments came and for whatever reason those uh, authorizations were not renewed so that they'd gone away, and we reached 2011 when, as we did, the administration uh, deployed our military to, to use force in Libya. Um, I actually don't think it would be any different than what actually happened because at that time there was no claim by the administration that what it was doing in Libya was under color of either of the existing AUMFs. Instead, it was a, a pretty broad claim of Article II authority inherent in the president. So I think we would have seen that same claim being made, uh, for better or worse. 
that claim does illustrate the breadth with which this administration understands its Article II authority to act without your participation to be. That was not a situation where there had been an attack on the United States, or at least that that was being claimed as the basis for it. Instead, it was it was about the uh, the enforcement of the UN Security Council resolution, foreign policy interests that were very important, humanitarian interests that were important, but none of which are traditional bases for Article II claims of authority to deploy the military. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service, 
that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. Thank the gentleman. And, and just to alert members and witnesses, because we're the largest committee in Congress, I have to be pretty strict about the, uh, about the time limit. So uh, I, I appreciate your understanding on that. Ms. Davis. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you all very much for being here for your service, particularly General Keene, and, and uh, for your insights. Uh, I want to actually turn to something that maybe we have a little more control over, uh, and, and that's the reporting mechanism. And Mr. Wittes, you talked about that. Uh, General Keene, you, you uh, yourself mentioned in, in your remarks or in, in the article that we were three years into a failing strategy um, with the war in Iraq. And, and you talked about the adaptiveness, and, and I appreciate that in terms of our military. But I guess I'm looking for what language you think is appropriate in terms of the reporting mechanism to the Congress, because there are a few of us who were here at that time and uh, I don't know, how do you think we did? Um, how, how did we do in terms of that oversight role? Because if we were three years into a failing strategy, had difficulty asking the questions, and frankly, a great deal of difficulty getting answers, uh, what is it that we need to do now? I'm very glad you asked that question, because I actually think the reporting requirements that the administration wrote into its draft AUMS um, should reasonably be regarded as insulting um, to uh, uh, probably less to the, commit, the committees of jurisdiction than to the larger Congress and certainly to the public. For the last number of years, there's been a uh, quiet but occasionally erupting tension um, between uh, you sometimes see it, I, I don't know if it's arisen on this committee, but it's certainly come up on, on your, with your Senate counterparts where uh, people have wanted to get a list of groups that are covered by the AUMF. And the administration has actually not produced a list of groups that the AUMF offer, authorizes force against. Um, and I think this is um, kind of a mind-boggling thing, that you have a 13-, 14-year-old war in which the position of the executive branch is that there is no, you know, there is no public list of the group of people that we're at war with. 
Um, and I, so I think at a minimum, the reporting requirements should require public reporting of the list of organizations that the administration considers affiliates, associates, co-belligerents of the organizations that it's authorizing force against. One of the reasons to integrate the existing AUMF into the old AUMF is so that you can apply those reporting requirements to al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and their associated forces. And, and in a way, I mean, we're saying associated forces, um, but not including persons as in the 2001 as well. Although there is, a, there is some pretty broad language here about, a, about who counts as an associated force. But I'm saying, you know, that's a separate fight. The question, once you've decided somebody is an associated force, who gets to know that, right? And I think this, the Congress, should be advised of who's an associated force. And unless there's some compelling national security reason to keep it secret from the public, that should be provided in public form as well. Secondly, the administration's draft talks about, I, I don't have the language of it in front of me, but it talks about a semi-annual report or a twice-annual report on specific actions taken under the authorization. Now, again, there's no cl clarity about what specific actions mean, and there's some question if you have duplicative authorizations, whether you're taking it under this authorization or under the other one that doesn't have the reporting requirements. So I, I think that, you know, in, in the draft that, that Professor Chesney and our co-authors and I wrote, um, we laid out what we thought were a, a sort of robust and reasonable set of reporting obligations. Um, I, the, the, the text of that is in my prepared statement, and I, I still think those make sense, honestly. Yeah. T time is running out. Mr. Testing, I, I appreciate that you would agree um, with that. General Keene, can you comment on on the reporting and the role of the Congress and, and again, these three years into a failing? I don't have any problem with re reporting requirements. I do believe the mechanism for oversight of, of military force being applied is already here, and your committee is central, central to that. I think it really has much to do with the rigor of, of that. Um, the three-year failed strategy we, we had in, uh, in Iraq, I, I don't suggest that the committee probably would have uncovered initially that the strategy was not going to work, but I think at, when the evidence was there that it was not working, uh, I think uh, the committee does bear some responsibility to do thorough assessments. If these are the goals and objectives we're trying to achieve, how are we how are we doing against these goals and objectives? And then that, that kind of analysis uh, was there, and it was evidence that the strategy was failing. Uh, so I think the mechanism is really already here. I think it has to do with um, rolling up the sleeves and, and doing rigorous uh, assessment and analysis. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Wilson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank each of you for being here today. And uh, General Keene, I want to thank you uh, for your uh, service on cable uh, news. Uh, it's always really so solid, the information you provide. Uh, it's so meaningful and so important to the American people. Uh, it, it's particularly meaningful to me. I have four sons currently serving in the military of the United States. Uh, and every time I see you on the uh, air, it's a reminder to me of how capable and competent uh, the American military is. And uh, so I want to thank you for that. Uh, I also would like uh, your input on uh, what suggestions do you have uh, for the AUMF, and, and what language should there be uh, for the flexibility for our president uh, to be able to lead us to victory? 
Well, I think the the language in the in term, that we found in the other two AMFs, AUMFs, excuse me, um, where we're talking about using the appropriate and necessary force, and a very short statement to that effect, is what really is appropriate. Um, I, I, as I stated in uh, oral statement, I, I don't believe we need to, nor should we have a time constraint in it. Why, why cast any doubt about our resolve? Why do that? Um, the, this administration has a pattern of doing that in the past, as, as we recognized when the president, I think, rightfully made the, the commitment to escalate our forces in Afghanistan in the same public policy statement, he, he announced the termination of that force as well. I think that is an unnecessary flag to our enemy about our lack of commitment, and I also think it, it it does much the same with our allies. So I would avoid that for those reasons, and I do believe that given the authorities that Congress has and the oversight responsibilities, you can, you can get at this another way. I, do, I, I would agree with Mr. Chesney that if you kick this thing down the road a little bit a few more years, then some of that does go away in terms of the lack of resolve and, and commitment. But three years, I think, is unacceptable. The the, the ground force constraint, um, I think, has to be absolutely removed um, because of what we're dealing with. We are facing an enemy that, it, in the front of us, we have to deal with largely militarily. At the same time, we're trying to counter their finances, undermine their ideology. But this, right now, is a central military problem. And we already know that the only way that we can defeat this force is with effective ground operations. So anything in this document that would cast doubt on our ability to conduct decisive and effective ground force operations seems to me to be misguided, and it, and it, should, not, it should not be in the, in the document. I would bow to my Mr. Witt on, on the left who knows far, far more about the intricacies of the legality of this than I do, but I and, – and, and the fact that the president would still have the authority, even though the appearance of it would mean that he does not. I would not want that confusion. I don't want our troops to have that kind of confusion. It doesn't make any sense, sense to me. And those are the essential, uh, essential issues for me. I'm for the president having a, the latitude to conduct military operations uh, without these constraints on it. And it, and it does appear to uh, be a limitation on ground troops, but with loopholes uh, that uh, it certainly has to be uh, of concern to the American people. And uh, Dean Chesney and Mr. Wittes, uh, it's been indicated that you all have provided uh, uh, an, a, the language for AUMF. Has that been provided uh, to the American people, and can you give a summary? Um, so th this was written uh, back in November in a post on 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 lawfare by, by the four of us, we had written a draft AUMF, a, a, a much more complicated draft about a year and a half earlier than that. And so this was a response to some of the uh, criticisms that we had received um, and also a response to ISIL, which had emerged in the meantime. And what we tried to do was to uh, authorize force against the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIL, and their associated forces 
we did not have a ground force, ground, uh, ground force restriction in which I don't think any of us particularly believed. Um, and we uh, did have a sunset restriction, a, a provision that was also three years. Um, but I think there's a very simple solution to the problem of tra triggering, uh, flagging the, uh, for the enemy a lack of resolve, make the thing longer, and don't call it a sunset. Thank you. Mr. Garamendi. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and, and a, uh, a big thank you to you for conducting this hearing, and I understand another hearing coming up uh, uh, next week or thereafter on the military side of this, what might be necessary. We're doing exactly what we should be doing as members of Congress. Uh, in my view, it's absolutely essential for Congress to act, uh, to use the 2001 or the 2002 AUMF as a reason for a new war, actually a war that was declared over in Iraq uh, is, in my estimation, just dead wrong. And we have a responsibility. We represent the American people, 535 of us, plus one, the president. And um, we have the obligation to deal with this. Not easy. Easier to duck, but it's our responsibility. With regard to the 2001 uh, AUMF still being in place and a sunset, the 2001 AUMF proves the reason for a sunset. An unending war can't continue it. We've got to deal with this, and a sunset seems to me to be absolutely appropriate in that, and three years requires that the next presidential election be about war. And that's a really good thing for the United States to debate and to discuss. Uh, with regard to the issue of, uh, and this is coming to a question, the issue of uh, limitations of the use of boots on the ground, which the president says he wants to limit, uh, but then writes in such a way as probably not limiting. Um, is there any debate between our two esteemed, esteemed lawyers and uh, general about the ability of Congress to use the purse to limit the use of ground troops? For example, no money for uh, infantry brigades, army brigades, artillery, and et cetera. Uh, but perhaps money for special forces and the like. Is there any doubt about the ability of Congress to limit using the purse? I don't think there's any serious doubt about that. I think amongst those who debate these war powers issues, one common touchstone is that the power of the purse uh, there's very little Congress can't accomplish with it. Uh, we can imagine a, a bizarre hypothetical where somehow that power is leveraged to say that the president's not the commander-in-chief, but instead fill-in-the-blank will have command. Um, but the, obviously nothing like that sort's being contemplated or talked about here. So as long as you're away from that, that core uh, superintendent's function, I think the power of the purse gives you a lot of leverage uh, if it can be used in, in a particular way. Any, uh, any debate about that amongst the... No debate for me. I mean, you've done it before. The Congress stopped the war in Vietnam. It, it unauthorized, uh, no longer authorized our advisors, no longer authorized the use of air, air power, and, and, that, and that war ended. I, I think it's the most uh, powerful mechanism that you actually have. Yeah, no, I have nothing to add to that. Well, given that, and given the... Um debate, which will go on forever, about how you define boots on the ground or limitations on what can actually be done. It just seems to me that we could very simply say, you have the power to bomb, you have the money to bomb, you have the money to do special operations or uh, 
all of the other things, but there is no money for the brigades, infantry, artillery, et cetera. Um, and I think that's a good, clear way to limit it. It also gives this committee and the Congress the opportunity at any moment to change its mind and appropriate the money for those purposes. So we would be constantly and appropriately, therefore, engaged in the ongoing issue of, of the war and its uh, outcome. Uh, the other uh, issue uh, that is, uh, I think, one that we're going to have to deal with um, uh, is this issue of limitation. As I said before, I think it's absolutely essential. Three years is perfect, in my view. I know you disagree that maybe uh, the next president ought not have to deal with it immediately. I strongly disagree that the next president must deal with this up front in the campaign, tell the American people whether they want war or not and how they would conduct it. Uh, the other uh, issue is the geography here. Uh, we're going to go round and round on geography. And I, again, my personal view of this is it must be limited. Uh, and probably doing that by clearly stating who we are at war with. And a final point, and I guess this won't be a question, but rather a comment, and that is, uh, General, you're absolutely correct uh, about the ideological war that we must be engaged in also. It's not just going to be a uh, military war. This is a, this is a question about ideology and our necessity of dealing with that reality. I thank you, gentlemen, for the clarity on the power of the purse. Ms. Duckworth. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, gentlemen, I thank you for being here today, and, of course, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for bringing um, this uh, uh, hearing, um, this issue to our hearing. I'm encouraged by the fact that we're finally having this debate because I think Congress failed last fall to not only have an honest discussion about our overall strategy to defeat ISIS, but we also failed to discuss the underpinning authorities for that strategy. Um, I think regardless of where you come down on this issue, it's important that we have the discussion. Um, so I'm glad that we're here. Um, I want to, uh, first off, just say that the paramount importance is to make sure that our troops who are sent into harm's way know that all of America is behind them. When they go to battle and they go to fight and they go to potentially lay down their lives for this nation, they need to know that we're behind them and that, they, that we will be there to help provide them with the resources that they need to do the job that we ask them to do. That said, I think the AUMF um, uh, is critically important. I actually voted against the repeal of both the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs in the past when they came up on the floor as amendments to NDAA and uh, defense appropriations, not because I fully support them, but because there was no alternative at the time. Now that we're looking at this new alternative, um, I like the fact, um, uh, the proposal that uh, uh, this new AUMF should subsume and, and, and we should get rid of the 2001, um, and I agree with that. What I do want to do is to drill down on the geographic boundaries portion of it, and specifically the Brookings Institution's proposal to, instead of having a geographic boundary, a legal boundary, one that is... Um, uh, in conjunction with international laws for the use of force and sovereignty. Um, so could you, um, is it Wittes or Wittes? Wittes. Wittes. I apologize. No worries. Um, uh, Mr. Wittes, could you sort of drill down on that for me a little bit? Um, let me just give you a specific example and see if I understand this correctly. This legal boundary would basically say to American commanders on the ground, um, whom we should trust, by the way, because we put them in charge, and, and, and they know what they're doing when it comes to um, uh, the, uh, military, uh, the use of military force. So we're telling them that 
in Iraq and Afghanistan, because we have the cooperation of those nations' governments, you can be in there, you can do your job, but um, you can't go and invade Pakistan without coming to Congress and Congress authorizing that first, because we don't have the um, invitation of the government of Pakistan to come conduct um, uh, operations within their territory. What does this do for countries or failed states? Places like Yemen, places like Somalia back in 2001. What does, how, you know, if, if these guys run into, are in Yemen, does this then put constraints on our military commanders and on our troops to not be able to go after ISIS forces in Yemen, for example? So I've got two minutes to answer this question. Go I'm going to do my best. You have to uh, go two minutes. So, um, look, the, the, what, what, we, what we said in the proposal um, was that Congress authorizes action in any location uh, that, it, that action, military action would be appropriate and lawful under international law of sovereignty and the use of force. Um, now, in circumstances, for example, where you would implicate the president's Article II self-defense authorities, um, of course, he wouldn't have to rely on this authorization. So in the exigent, imminent uh, defense situation, he can operate under his own authority to the extent that he needs to. There are two ways to satisfy the sovereignty um, barrier under international law. One is if you have the consent of the country in question. Yemen tolerates our conducting drone strikes against AQAP. Um, uh, Pakistan has sometimes permitted our, you know, our use of, of drones to strike targets in Pakistan. Uh, that alleviates, ends the sovereignty problem. The other way is that the U.S. position is that it has the authority to use force against a non-consent, on the, against, uh, on the territory of a non-consenting state when that state is either unwilling or unable to contain and deal with the threat that it is emanating from its soil against us. And so what this would say is if one of those two, that's the, if that's your position as the administration on your international authority to use force, if you're within it, then you're within Congress's blessing and authorization. But we're not giving you authorization to do stuff that would otherwise violate international law as you understand it. Very good. Thank you very much. It was impressive. Uh, Mr. Turner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, gentlemen, one of the things that we're being asked to do is to repeal the 2002 authorization for the use of military force. Uh, as you know, the 2002 AUMF, uh, with concerning Iraq, found that Iraq poses a continuing threat to the national security of the United States and international peace and security in the Persian Gulf region, and because members of al-Qaeda are known to be in Iraq. I would like your opinion because it would seem to me that even though that the Saddam Hussein regime has been removed from power, that the objectives in the 2002 resolution remain, protecting both the United States and Iraqi min minority groups as well as ending terrorism in Iraq. All of those objectives are still in doubt, and therefore it does seem that there may be a compelling legal rationale for keeping the 2002 AUMF in force, since the President obviously is finding that he has very broad authority under it currently. So do you believe that um, uh, leaving the 2002 AUMF uh, concerning Iraq in place would be a conflict? And would you re recommend removing the, pres the text that um, repeals the 2002 AUMF? Any thoughts? 
So when the administration revealed that it was relying on the 2002 Iraq AUMF as part of its basis for its operations in Iraq, this precipitated a lot of debate amongst folks about whether this is a persuasive claim under that authority. The objectives, as you say, the objectives of the O2 authorization are still present. The question is, the authorization was specific to the threat posed by Iraq. What do we mean by that? What's the best reading of that authorization? If it means threats to the United States that are emanating from within the, or that involve something happening within the borders of the state of Iraq, that's an argument for saying that it fits. And I guess that's the argument that the administration adopted. If it's read instead to mean that Iraq in O2, that's referring to Saddam Hussein's regime and the government of Iraq as the threat, then it doesn't fit well. And that, that was a view that was a little bit more plausible to me, but pe- reasonable lawyers, including some of my colleagues uh, on, the, on lawfare, we disagreed on this point. The interesting question today is, is there anything you get only with the 2002 authorization that isn't separately covered either by the 2001 authorization against al-Qaeda or a new authorization that this body may produce against ISIL? Um, And I'm hard-pressed to think of what that might be. We'd have to imagine a situation in which force needed to be used against some entity that was not plausibly an associated force of ISIL nor an associated force of al-Qaeda. We might imagine uh, falling into that category, uh, Shiite militias, Hezbollah, the the groups that are on the Shiite, uh, Iran-sponsored side of things. we're not, to the best of my knowledge, at least in the public record, we're not currently using force or contemplating the use of force against them. Indeed, in some respects, we're, we're fighting in the same direction against ISIS with those entities. Um, you can imagine, though, a situation where it, it does seem appropriate, a, a new fact pattern. In that circumstance, the president's Article II authorities would be ample to at least initially respond, and I think the wiser course would be to come back to this body at that point if something more than Article II were needed. Other thoughts? Any other thoughts on the panel? I mean, I, I very much agree with that. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Mr. Norcross. Thank you, Chairman. Certainly appreciate it. And, uh, you know, one of the duties that we have is to make decisions on these very difficult items. And uh, it weighs heavily, certainly on my mind and those of the people that I represent. Uh, Certainly, I have to agree with the witnesses when they talk about three reasons that we're even considering this. Obviously, the moral reason, which I agree with, um, the age and the scope of the old AMUF, and certainly, it's our job, which actually brings me to the point of the question. King Abdul was here two, three weeks ago, and... It was the day that the video was released of his pilot being burned to death in a cage, that barbaric uh, video. Um, He stated, this is our war, indicating that he and his partners in the Gulf, it can't be America against them. We want, we need your help, but it's our war. And the other item, which really resonates with me, I've been fighting this for 1,400 years. And brings me back to what uh, Mr. Smith had said is beating down the moles. So we heard the question earlier talking about what is a win. And certainly the nuts and bolts of a win uh, can be debated. But I think those who we are targeting, it's not a team sport that they win and lose. It's a way of life. And I think we've heard ample evidence of that, that 
they're willing to give everything up because they believe in this at a core level. Whether we think it's insane or not is immaterial. Uh, but you had talked rather general, uh, directly against the time frame. Um, couldn't the same argument be spoken about the time frame is each year we authorize a budget. In many ways, that is a time frame. I think it is the responsibility of the next president and next Congress to review what we're doing. And I don't think anybody in this room or in America doubts the resolve of the American people to back up our troops. So I, I want to get your opinion on um, where we're going with the time frame again, given that at any point they could point to the fact that we wouldn't fund this through a budget and appropriations. How is that different than the resolve of a two or three year uh, AMUF? Well, in my mind, I mean, the budget is, a, is, an, is an annual process, and that's quite different. Uh, even though there's plenty of authorities in the budget, obviously, to fund military operations. Um, but that's, that's quite different from the AUMF where you're authorizing military force for a specific purpose and, and then tying a time frame to that authorization. I'm suggesting that why do that when you have plenty of authority yourselves in, in your normal oversight of the Department of Defense and the executive branch to make certain that you understand what has taken place and the progress that has taken place and you have the, the power of the, of the purse in any event, which is your ultimate authority, I just, I, I think it, 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 it sends a message of a lack of resolve. You know as well as I do that our friends in the region, and if you're speaking to them, you know what I'm about to say that they have been questioning America's resolve in this region for some time now. Exactly why we're here today. And, and why, why, why add to that? Why add to that doubt about our resolve? After all, we are going to be largely depending on them dealing with this problem for years to come. And secondly, I think it sends a message to the enemy that well, America is not that serious. We're going to take a look, a look at this in three years and see if we should be doing this. When anybody who's looking at this, I mean, the reason why we have an authorization for military force is because I think it's, it's an unstated, it's, it's, a, it's an un, unstated understanding that this, it will be protracted, that this, that this is going to go on for years. The issue that we would be discussing each year, couldn't they look at that from the very same perspective as you're suggesting? that the normal oversight that takes place and the tough questions that are asked of, um, of you know, the Department of Defense leadership, both uh, civilian and, and military, um, those kind of rigor, that kind of rigorous analysis is never going to get communicated to the same way that the authorization for military force and the time constraint that's associated with it would be. I mean, that's the headline. And uh, rigorous analysis on, in terms of the progress we're making is not. Uh, I think those are two very different things and, and quite separate, frankly. Thank you.
Well, thank you. It, it occurs to me that emphasizing our relationship to the Kurds and, and, and helping them as much as possible might be a safer uh, alternative there. But um, one of the great concerns that I think all of us have is that we, you know, one of the gentlemen mentioned here, we've been fighting this radical Islamist ideology for, for 1,400 years. And, and so without defining our enemy or, or essentially by that ideology, it's difficult for me to know how that we engage them strategically. I mean, we've, we've fought terrorism tactically very successfully. We've, we've had unprecedented success, but I think that we've failed to engage them strategically. And so I guess I'd ask what would your thoughts be to some language in an AUMF that might uh, sort of, I know it's deep water, but to holistically uh, identify this ideology so that we're able to confront it uh, where it uh, uh, emerges uh, instead of just kind of coming up with some fuzzy associational definitions? You know, I, I sympathize, you know, with your desire to do that because you're frustrated like I am that we don't have a comprehensive strategy to deal with this, and, and it's gone on far too long. And when you watch the growth of the continued growth of al-Qaeda and, and now watching the growth of, of ISIS, it's, it's particularly difficult to to recognize that we still haven't come to grips with it. But this is not the document to put those means in there, even though you're frustrated and, and you're tempted to want to do that. Um, it, it's just inappropriate to do it. Uh, I think it would set a terrible precedent for authorizing military force. I think you'd get significant pushback from the, and justifiably so, from the, from the president and his team. Um, I think bringing the, the national leadership in here and putting them in front of you and asking them to explain what is the strategy to deal with radical Islam and evaluating that and assessing that and pushing on them, uh, I think that's much more appropriate to deal with than, than to try to, uh, to put some expression of it in, in this document. Any authorization for military force? I think it's I think it's inappropriate. Thank you, sir. Mr. Taka. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and really thank you very much for having uh, this hearing. As many have mentioned, this is a very important issue for all of us here, and, and definitely for our constituents back at home. Um, I I looked at the uh, the request uh, from the president in the form of this um, joint resolution, and under. Uh, Section C, limitations, it says the authority to grant uh, does not authorize the use of the United States Armed Forces in, and I quote, enduring offensive ground combat operations. So my question to you on the panel is what does that mean? Uh, does it actually refer to the length of time during which the operations will be ongoing uh, for three years? Uh, what is the scope of the operation from your perspective? And um, uh, is it, in fact, uh, some undefined relationship between time and scope? It's not well defined. It's, it's a, a severe problem with the language in Section 2C. Um, and it's not just one problem of lack of clarity. It's, it's multiple problems. Enduring has no particular legal meaning. Um, that 
in some people's minds could reasonably refer to years in other people's minds. The, the Secretary of State the other day, on Tuesday, referred to uh, a couple of weeks or a few weeks. Um, well, there, you know, reasonable people can disagree about what enduring means. Offensive is difficult to describe. So, for example, the, op the upcoming operation uh, to, to liberate uh, the city of Mosul, is that, is that an offensive operation? You can see where someone would view it that way. But on the other hand, it's not like ISIL was in that city all along. Uh, ISIL came in and took it. Is it defensive to drive them back out? Ground combat. If you uh, have forward air controllers who are on the ground and are directing airstrikes or assisting with the direction of airstrikes, is that a ground combat operation? There's ways to try to handle this by offering statements like the president's transmittal letter referring to, well, here's a list or an enumeration of particular types of activities that we mean to be okay. But at the end of the day, none of that gets enacted in the AUMF. The AUMF's text will say no enduring offensive ground combat operations, and that language should be dropped. Okay, thank you. I have another question, and maybe you can help me with this. Um, so there's been many mentions. I mean, if you take a look at the uh, language, it also repeals the 2002 AUMF. Um, but my reservations are in regards to the uh, still in effect 2001 AUMF. So my question is, um, and in fact, uh, many people have already said it, the conflict that we're in right now, um, what's happening right now is, is based on the 2001 and 2002 AUMF. So what, what is your perspective uh, with the fact that the uh, 2001 AUMF will still be in effect? in effect based on this draft. Um, uh, what, what, what does that mean? I mean, we're currently operating with those two AUMFs. Is, in fact, this particular draft necessary to continue operation? Well, so what it means very simply is that um, the additional authorization here is purely additive, not there's no, you know, the interaction between this and the underlying document is that this merely adds authority. It does not tailor authority. It doesn't really, despite the optics, at least as a legal matter, it doesn't limit authority. And I think if, if I have one message for this committee, it is think about the new inter authorization in interaction with the prior authorization because otherwise you end up talking about restrictions that aren't real restrictions, and you also end up um, imposing, cons you know, you, 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 you end up doing all kinds of things that you don't know you're doing or you don't mean to be doing because, because there are these other documents out there. And so think, of, you know, think about it as though you had to today answer the question, uh, what force do we want to be authorizing overseas in general against the groups that we might want to use force against? And, and some of that involves rewriting the old AUMF, and some of it involves the discrete expansion of it into the ISIL and Associated Forces Department. But think about that question holistically. Don't try to think about it as, you know, hey, what can we add um, that's on ISIL in particular, because then you end up with, with restrictions that don't seem to mean what they say. Okay, and then uh, one more question, and I guess we'll have to wait for your response in writing. Um, but I'm just questioning why you think there was no geographical limitations put in this current draft. So if you can think about that and maybe um, just send us the information. I, I, I can give you a two-second answer to that, because uh, the administration wanted to maintain flexibility. All right, thank you.
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Sorry, I've got one minute. I wanted to just uh, ask Mr. Chesney both to address this, but also the first point that you made about this AUMF lacking a purpose, uh, a, a directly stated purpose, and how you could see that um, an effective winning strategy can be uh, achieved and outlined really in this. So taking these in reverse order, um, it, it certainly makes sense to talk about the strategy on the ground most likely being best effectuated by an Arab regional ground force, properly supported and led and resourced and, and, and punched up by, by U.S. forces, trying to uh, tweak the AMF's language in a way that allows for that, yet doesn't somehow allow for a larger ground force where it's just the U.S., I think is, is not going to be easily done and shouldn't be attempted. That should be left to the commander-in-chief to figure out how to do this without trying to tie his hands legislatively. As to what you say about uh, the purpose, very difficult to make a granular statement there, but there needs to be at least some guidance at a high level of generality. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Aguilar. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, gentlemen, for, for joining us. Um, Mr. Chesney and Mr. Wittis, I'm sorry. Uh, can you say it one more time? Wittis. Okay, I was close. Uh, Mr. Chesney and Mr. Wittis, uh, you, you mentioned during your, your opening comments the silence that the AUMF has on detention protocols. Um, so, Mr. Wittis, if you could start, how would the alternative AUMF draft that, that you created um, treat detention protocols moving forward? Uh, in addition to the current detainees held under the 2001 AUMF? Right, so this is an excellent question. So on, under, the, um, under the draft that we uh, wrote, you also have a, a, a notional silence about um, detention operations, except that the language that we used uh, to authorize force is the exact same language that the D.C. Circuit has used uh, to describe the, in the current, under the current AUMF, the detention authority that it embeds. And so what we were trying to do there was not change the status quo as to detention except to add ISIL to the list of groups that you, ISIL and its associated forces, that you could apply the AUMF's detention authority to. Um, I suppose we can be uh, criticized along the same lines that uh, Professor Chesney criticized the administration for sort of doing it elliptically rather than directly. Uh, as uh, um, I have, you know, this committee knows, I have, I'm all for being explicit about detention authorities, which, which you know, has been a big theme of, of a lot of my work. And so if there were any inclination in the broader uh, political community to make detention authority under this AUMF explicit, I think that would be a wonderful, wonderful thing and, and a very appropriate thing for the committee to do. My concern about the way the administration has worded this draft is that because it's not piggybacking off of the existing AUMF, the moment you detain somebody under it, um, you would have a habeas litigation in which you would have to uh, and I think the administration would win, by the way, but you'd have to litigate the question, does this detention authority, does detention authority exist under this AUMF? I think under our draft, it's a lot, lot clearer what the answer to that question would be. Mr. Chesney? I, I agree with everything Ben said. 
Thank you, gentlemen. And, and that doesn't take away anything from the broader strategic discussions that my colleagues, some incredible questions uh, that, that have been asked. Uh, but I did want to delve into to that piece because it was common between uh, your testimonies, uh, the written uh, and, the, and the public, and I appreciate it. But going back to, to Mr. Uh, o Congressman O'Rourke's uh, comments, uh, you two gentlemen didn't get to answer that piece, uh, and I know he mentioned uh, possibly uh, putting it in writing, but if, but if you could uh, discuss uh, what you feel um, winning looks like and, and what the conditions uh, to, uh, for us to achieve success uh, would look like. I'll just offer a few preliminary thoughts, um, and these are similar to what General Kane said earlier. Uh, I think a big part of success involves ensuring that ISIL does not have a safe haven within which it can conduct, uh, first of all, its own external operations. And that doesn't necessarily mean operations against the United States, though obviously that would be our first and foremost concern, but it could be operations in Europe, it could be operations against Jordan, it could be operations in Turkey, in any number of other places. Uh, secondly, and slightly distinct from that, uh, a safe territorial haven from within which they're able to attract and train foreign fighters who then go back and even if not in any way subject to ISIL's direction and control, nonetheless going back and as um, local homegrown terrorists then carrying out attacks and destabilizing our, our allies in the area. These are things that we need to prevent ISIL from being able to do. I don't really have much to add to that. I mean, I think the, 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 the focus on, um, on safe havens and ungoverned territories is critical. Um, these lead to very bad outcomes, and the last 20 years is just one example of that after another. And I think the uh, instinct to create, uh, to, to remove, uh, to, to allow sovereign power from reasonable governments, not, you know, non-exporting of violence governments over what are now so, um, ungoverned territories. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate your patience and yield back. I appreciate your patience and waiting to get a very good question. Thank you. Uh, Y'all have answered a wide range of questions, and I think uh, you can tell members are very serious and very concerned about this. I, I don't want to try your patience too long. I've got one other thing I want to get uh, comments from our legal experts, if I may, because it continues to, to bother me in some ways. And my question is, can the way an enemy define itself or affiliate itself matter when it comes to an AUMF? Because uh, we have stretched the meaning of the 2001 AUMF so far that anyone who has a connection with the attacks of 9-11, it, it's just hard to, to even believe those words have much meaning. Uh, and we have this situation where there have been incidents where al-Nusra and ISIS have, have disassociated themselves from each other and actually fought with each other. And yet the claim is once you're under the uh, affiliate with al-Qaeda, you're always affiliated with al-Qaeda no matter what you do or say. So we don't want people to be able to change their name and thus not be subject to attack. On the other hand, uh, is there nothing that you do or say that ever changes your affiliation? I mean, I don't know. Do y'all have uh, legal opinions about the way that works or doesn't work? Um, so I think the 
at, at the polar levels, the answer to your question is, uh, I think, pretty clear, which is to say, let's say, um, you know, I'm a member of Al-Qaeda and I openly and publicly renounce and break my affiliation with the group. I think there's a pretty good argument under those circumstances that to the extent that the AUMF once covered me, it may no longer cover me. And similarly, if you imagine a, a faction of Al-Qaeda that breaks off and says, you know, we want to start a peace process, right? I, I think you could make an argument that, 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 that you might think about that group very differently under the AUMF. Both of those are somewhat fantastical examples. Um, but... Um, I think the other side of it is if Al-Qaeda changes its name tomorrow to Greenpeace, uh, no one would seriously argue that we then lack the authority to, you know, attack, you know, the Greenpeace front in, in, in Syria. Um, where the question gets very hard is where you have these ever-splintering groups that are uh, historically affiliated but maybe no longer affiliate or maybe offshoots of groups that are themselves offshoots. And here I think, you know, I go back to the point that, you know, we started with, which is that the underlying document is aged. Um, it is very appropriate, given that, to write a document that describes the war that we are fighting rather than, in, in fact, rather than the war that we thought 13 years ago we would be fighting. Uh, by the way, that document will have a shelf life and a half life too, and it will start degrading almost as soon as you pass it, which is another reason that the idea of whatever you call it, the renewal or the sunset or the re-engagement, um, no pun intended, uh, is, a, is a good one, and, and it forces you to come back and say, does this document still describe what we want to be doing? The core of the problem you identify is unsolvable because unlike, you know, the Third Reich, which doesn't morph, right? It, it asserts a sovereignty. It is what it is. It's, it's it, it, you know, this is not, this is more fluid than that. Okay. Question, question. So I think this underscores one reason why the oversight provision that our draft had emphasized, specifically including a requirement that when the administration identifies, or when the Pentagon or whoever identifies a group as an associated force or a successor force, that there be some, certainly at least to Congress and preferably to the American public, that that decision's been made. In other words, Ben's right. There's a, there's a level at which this is unsolvable with crafting of language, so you shine a spotlight on it and make sure that people are aware of how it's being interpreted. Uh, so that's one thing I'd say. And then the second thing I'd say is this is both a problem for the um, removing a group removing itself from the scope of the AMF, but also coming into it. And so to give a concrete example of this, in the Sinai, there's a group, ABM, I'm going to mispronounce this, but it's something along the lines of Ansar Bait Makdisi, it had been uh, an al-Qaeda-affiliated group, but it's, the Egyptians have done a tremendous job of taking out their leadership, and one consequence of all that is that the people now in charge apparently were open to tying in with ISIL instead, and they've, they've made formal claims to affiliation with ISIL. So now you have this ISIL franchise in the Sinai. Well, you know, w would they count if they've not taken any action or shown any inclination to take action against the United States merely by virtue of that formality? 
These are the debates we've been having for 13 years under the uh, 2001 AUMF. Um, this is an occasion to think more systematically about how to define things. And if, if there's no better way to define it, then you shine a spotlight on it. Okay. Fair point. Uh, thank you again all. Uh, you all have, have really been helpful, I think, to the committee. And we appreciate your, your time and patience over these last three hours. Uh, with that, the hearing stands adjourned. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, please spread the word and promote the Lawfare Podcast via your social networks on Twitter, Facebook, email, and in any way you can. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.